This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. The following was recorded at RAND's Politics Aside 2016 in November. Here's host Malcolm Gladwell introducing the healthcare panel. The next hour is going to be on healthcare. And we have gathered together a panel of three people. They're over there. We have uh, Mark Friedberg, who is a RAND smart person. Uh, Susan Denser, who will be coordinating the conversation, who is on the RAND health board. So she is also a a RAND smart person. And then Eric Topol, who is uh, at Scripps and is a very, very smart person, but who has incredibly never worked for RAND. And I don't know... (laughs) I'm going to put that down to organizational oversight, and I'm hoping we can correct that at some point in the future. So come on up, and uh, you have the next hour. Great. Well, thank you, Malcolm, and good morning to all of you. Uh, So let's open by talking about the election and, of course, what we now know is in train, which is some move to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. Now, as we know, there's no plan as yet to replace the Affordable Care Act. There's a lot of ideas and thoughts and feelings circulating, but no plan. What do we think lies ahead as best as we can see at this point in time? Mark, let's start with you. Uh, So the safe answer is we don't know. Um, There's a lot of uh, discussion about this evidently going on within the transition team. And there are parts of the Affordable Care Act that the president-elect has um, said that he likes. Um, The hard thing about the Affordable Care Act is dismantling it in a piecemeal fashion is likely to result in some consequences that um, may not be desirable uh, to the electorate in general. So this is likely to be a a quite difficult process. Like 20 million people potentially losing health insurance. That is one one. possibility, absolutely. Um, So we don't know yet. I think we'll know more uh, certainly over the coming months. Eric? Well, I think it's true, clearly, that we don't know, but I I also think uh, we don't want to miss that the main function of the Affordable Care Act was to give access to these people, 20 million and more to come, if it isn't changed in a marked way. But it didn't get to what we're going to talk about today, which is about all the innovations and the way medicine can change. It wasn't really, that wasn't its its goal. Uh, It it largely ignored that because the immediacy of getting access was was deemed uh, so important. That's right. So we'll have to see how this plays out over the next few months as uh, some meat is put on the bones of the replace, uh, and we'll see what effect it has on what we're going to talk about now, as you said, Eric, which is uh, this realm of innovation. So the Affordable Care Act was written in 2009, enacted in 2010. Uh, Just a few years before that, 2007, we have the first smartphone. Uh, Smartphone doesn't appear in the Affordable Care Act, But you could make an argument, and in fact, Eric has made the argument, that the smartphone is at the center of our new era of medicine. Eric has written two terrific books, The Creative Destruction of Medicine and The Patient Will See You Now, Doctor, (laughs) uh, uh, which lays out this thesis. And so, Eric, taking the theses of those two great books, Give us a picture for a moment, a snapshot of what healthcare looks like today to the average patient and what it's going to look like five and even ten years from now, given the digital revolution in healthcare, 
given the technology, we heard earlier about the autonomous car, there are versions of those things coming into healthcare. What's the future of healthcare going to look like as we may live it 10 years or so sure. from now? Well, thanks, Susan. I guess I would start off by, uh, does anyone here not have a smartphone? It's okay, you can confess. <laughs> not a single per. oh, one person, okay. <laughs> so I think we all would agree it changed our daily lives. And the next chapter is it's going to change our entire health if we wanted to. It's kind of like the uh, autonomous car. You don't have to have an autonomous car. But if you want medicine to substantially change, this becomes the hub. Already we've seen how you can do your cardiogram, not have to go to the emergency room if you think you have a heart rhythm problem, and then you get an algorithm interpretation, and you can diagnose your child um, as far as an ear infection through your smartphone. And, in fact, and you have an echocardiogram on your phone, correct? Yes, you can image your entire body. I imaged everything, you know, from uh, the sinuses of my head, thyroid, all the way to my, uh, to my left uh, foot. I mean, it's just incredible what you can do with a smartphone. At higher resolution, by the way, through the smartphone than you have uh, through the $350,000 ultrasound machine in the hospital. Uh, you have such capabilities, the likes of which, instead of the $4,000 to sleep in a hospital sleep lab, it's for free with your smartphone for diagnosing or monitoring sleep apnea. And I can go on and on. But the point about, about where this is headed is this smartphone data with um, bypassing doctors until you need to have the guidance and consulting. But it, this gives the person so much more charge. So it's this digitization of your data, and it's then the democratization, like um, was discussed earlier with the cars. And I think this is remarkable because all we're going to start seeing now is multi-scale, multi-dimensional data. So it won't just be the one thing, the cardiogram or the, the sleep. It'll be all your data, your activities, your sleep, your life, your labs that you can do through a smartphone, and your virtual medical coach who will be talking to you, texting you, uh, signaling you about certain things to preempt uh, problems before they arise. And that's where we're headed. It's a very exciting time. It isn't for everyone. Um, but it's for people who want to use this, this technology, uh, which is really evolving quickly. And as you wrote about in your books, this is going to change the whole notion of the doctor-patient relationship. That's why you wrote, the patient will see you now, doctor. Talk about that for a moment. Yes, because the way information flows today is the doctor uh, orders the tests. They order too, much too many tests. Uh, and... Uh, the problem we have, of course, is they rule the roost. We live in a community, medical community, that has remarkable uh, paternalism. What we're talking about in the future is the information flows from the patient. The patient is generating their data on their devices. And with that, there's this lack of, of any further information asymmetry. In fact, it's, it's a remarkable shift, power shift. Because it's all about that data, how it gets processed. And if you don't have to even see the doctor until you, you have questions uh, or if you need you know, some time of follow-up, this gives um, unprecedented um, uh, control to patients, the likes of which. And we've already seen so many examples of it. It's actually, for those who are uh, interested, it's, it's, it's really quite exciting because we have been suppressed that as a doctor and as a patient. I've had some recent patient experience. But we, we are uh, terribly suppressing patients from being able to. It's partly the problem of um, this attitude of um, doctors think that patients can't handle the truth. 
And this has been shown by study after study that indeed, whether it's their notes, whether it's their labs and other tests, they can handle the truth perfectly fine. But doctors are still not largely willing to admit that. This is a certain, certain democratization, if you will, of, of medicine. Patients are going to own a lot of this stake in medicine. Absolutely. I mean, I think that it's, it, there's never been a challenge to the medical profession like this. Um, you know, it's really ruled the roost for, you know, pre-Hippocrates. So this is something that only because of technology and the fact that data is eminently portable, this is what has led to this. Uh, now, many doctors think it's a crisis. They're losing control. They're losing reimbursement. Uh, they're not educated, many, for dealing with this whole world of telemedicine and algorithms and genomics and all this sort of thing. But in fact, um, if for, for the democratization value, um, it's, it's truly um, on the horizon, something that uh, many will, will embrace. So, Mark, you're an internist. You, you've, you study health systems. You, you have a report you told us a moment ago coming out about health system in Washington State, among others. How do you see this factoring into the health system broadly? How is it going to change? And importantly, we know one of our big concerns as a country is how much we're spending on health care. We're close to having 20% of the gross domestic product being devoted to health care. Is this going to save us money? Is this going to cost more money? Where, where do we think we're going with this? Yeah, that's a great set of questions. Um, first, I, I agree with Eric's vision for you know, the long term. I think that's uh, probably accurate for where we're going. There's going to be a lot more information generated by patients coming from all kinds of different sources that we don't even know about yet. Um, there's a note of caution, I would say, about uh, the, the, the information quality that's being generated. You know, this is really early on. Um, you know, a lot of these new kinds of devices that are generating new types of data have not been validated um, necessarily. They may not have actually received any kind of approvals from the FDA. It's not clear that they're telling the truth. So there's always a question about whether the... Um, the AMA actually had a, got in a little bit of trouble for sort of applying the, the term digital snake oil that I think uh, some people uh, interpreted to mean all digital data. I don't think that's how it was meant. It was this early stage determining which types of new types of uh, data are true and which are not. And we should be always very careful about uh, making sure that the, the information being generated is, in fact, true. But let's say it is true. Let's be focusing on the, on the good part of the data now. Um, the hardest part for doctors, and probably for patients as well, is dealing with the onslaught of new information. We're seeing an information explosion in healthcare and a lot of other industries. Figuring out what's the noise and what's the signal, taking that information and turning it into something that can be useful for making good decisions that will improve patient health, that's the real challenge. Uh, we have spent a lot of money recently on wiring physicians' offices and hospitals through electronic health records. If you talk to doctors or if you've spent any time with doctors in your own um, care, you see them dividing their attention between you and the EHR. People have sort of described this as um, being akin to um, texting while driving. And I think that's sort of an apt analogy. Right now, that's also at a rudimentary state. The organization of the information coming in is not being presented in a way that's making it easy to facilitate good care. So we still need those studies of outcomes all the way at the end. So we've got the new data. Is it true? Even if it's true, is it coming through a system and the choke point there? Uh, is the organization of the information? Is it then being yield? Um, is it then being translated 
into good care. Um, we have to see studies that look at all of the links along that chain, uh, which is only as strong as its weakest link, does it actually improve care? And then finally on your question um, about the cost of care, I think we don't really know yet. Um, this could certainly lower costs of care if we're able to, let's say, um, not give people um, therapies that we're giving to sort of the median patient, but now we know a lot more about the individual patient and their genomics, and we can target the therapies in a, in a really um, uh, parsimonious way with some of these new expensive drugs. That's all to the good. Uh, but sometimes in healthcare, you know, we see that technology is actually a, a key driver of cost, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it might actually be worth it to have uh, a more costly healthcare system if the outcomes in terms of health are worth it. Can I just respond Please. to a couple of things Mark's brought up? Uh, totally agree that you don't want to really uh, mix the bad, uh, unproven um, apps and devices in this new medicine with the ones that have been validated. The things I've been mentioning are FDA approved with peer-reviewed mm -hmm. publications, so we have to make sure that we don't uh, conflate that. Um, the other thing that's really fundamental here is that uh, since we're really getting into the cost issue, um, everything in medicine until now, essentially, uh, new technology raised costs. What we're dealing with now, finally, is Moore's Law is coming to medicine. And Moore's Law and is, Moore, of course, the yeah, I mean, observation that as chip power goes up, the cost of computing has gone down, and therefore PCs are a steal today and laptops are a steal today. Right. I mean, like the kind of power, computing power you have in your smartphone reflects that. But what we're really talking about is for example, going back to the electric cardiogram as a cardiologist, uh, a lot of my patients have heart rhythm or everyone has blood pressure problems. I have them get an app and they use uh, very inexpensive. These are $69. They can order through Amazon or go to you know local uh, mall. And this is cheap stuff, which is markedly reducing the cost of going to an emergency room uh, or even a doctor's visit. And then, of course, the other thing that's really uh, taking off right now is telemedicine, which has been shown and embraced by employers because it's markedly reducing costs. And that's because a doctor can't order the test because the person's remote. So, uh, Not to mention you don't have to go to the emergency department because it's a weekend. Right? right, exactly. And, you know, one of the interesting things here in Southern California, I don't know if anybody's Ubered a doctor here to their home, but there's several apps. There's five apps that will do that. And uh, one of them is called Heal. Uh, it's by, backed by Lionel Richie, of all people. <laughs> and when I contacted him, I said, well, Lionel, why didn't you call it all night long? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> 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 um, he, he responded, he said, but, Doc, it's all day long, too. <laughs> so the, the, the point is you can have a doctor come to your house now, and it's the same copay as if you had through your employer. And it winds up being cheaper because there's no CAT scans and labs and all this other stuff. So the point is when you separate the, the overuse of all the stuff that we do today and either have televisits or home visits, it really changes the cost dynamic. So we got these two things. We got Moore's Law and we got uh, bringing the patient and doctor together quickly and not necessarily physically. Uh, um, it's really, these are really important distinctions from the past. So I want to go back to Mark's point about the sheer volume of data that we'll be capturing. Uh, and Eric, you talk about all of the sensors that we will have someday on our bodies. I think an average of seven or so is a projection. Uh, collecting information across a series of ohms. So we know about the genome, three billion base pairs of information that each of us walks around with. 
But you say we'll also be collecting information about the epigenome, which is how gene expression changes in the context of environmental and other forces. We'll also be connect collecting information about the microbiome. And as we know, we've got 10 times as many human cells, uh, microbial cells in our bodies as human cells and 150 times microbial DNA in our DNA as human DNA. So that's a lot of other information. Uh, and then on and on, the metabolome, the proteome, et cetera. So I'm sitting here as a person who got a Fitbit two years ago. It's sitting in my drawer. Sure, like everyone else's. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> How do we put this together with the reality of our current lives as human beings and the volume of information that we could collect, but also a very low level of understanding what it all means at this point. We don't really know what would we do with lots of information right now about our metabolome, for example. Right. Um, well, this, this goes back even to Mark's point about um, what doctors are still, even with FDA-validated things, they still don't want to accept this because it represents drastic change. And here we have the ability to construct a Google medical map of each human being with all these layers. You, you've touched on several of them, but there's more. There's the environment, exposome, which can be quantified through sensors. And there's the, we already talked a bit about scans, the anatome, the sensors. By the way, connecting with the last session, today, not the autonomous cars, but the cars of today have over 400 sensors in them. All right? We have no sensors in us, you know, in terms of what we, we treat, we, we, we treat our cars with the utmost regard, but we don't really care about us so much. Uh, but what we have is the ability with these different layers of information to integrate that, and we can understand each person. So today, we have a trillion dollars of waste a year in healthcare, and so much of that is, is because of things like we do mass screening mammography, and we do PSAs, and we do all this stuff on everyone, and we give drugs. It, of the top 10 drugs today in gross sales, 70% uh, have no response. So we, It's incredible how many billions of dollars are wasted. So if we understood each person at this granular level with their genomic DNA drug interactions or you know, with the right medications, with the right sensors, and this sort of thing. We could take medicine. That's what is, of course, this idea of precision medicine. Uh, I, I like the term individualized medicine because it's not only that you're individualizing that person's medical map and data, but you're also giving that individual the potential charge much more uh, authority over their care. So, again, Mark, back to you. When we see physicians today, and you've done work in this area, struggling with the data in electronic health records, mm -hmm. trying to make sense of, of what they now have. And, of course, we know even what we're gathering through EHRs today is not optimal, and nor is their ability to move the information around the system the way we think we need to have it, have it be eventually. How, how do you see this coming together over the next 10 years? Are we going to be able to take this amazing potential that Eric just describes and actually put it in the hands of physicians, clinicians, and others on a timely, in a timely way so they actually can achieve this potential that he describes to do the right thing for the right person at the right moment in time? Yeah. We're going to need a pretty fundamental re-engineering of the healthcare system that recognizes that much of healthcare is primarily information management. That's not been prioritized to date, not to the extent it needs to be. And information management includes the human interface with the computer um, on the receiving end and the sending end. 
you know, the, the irony, of course, in EHRs right now is you, electronic health records is you have um, very onerous data input. Things are put into fields, uh, and you know, there's a, about 1,000 clicks per patient, uh, you know, seeing them throughout the day, just getting the information to the correct place so it can then be into a structured database. You'd think, after all that work, you could suck it back out and generate all kinds of reports. That also can't be done very easily. So we're at, a, I think, the infancy of the software, but it's not just the software. It's every other aspect of the um, healthcare system as well. Uh, Fee-for-service billing, for example, the payment structure, does not pay uh, the healthcare system for information management. Uh, you get paid for seeing patients. Anything you do when the patient isn't there is gratis. So the incentive is definitely not there to spend a lot of time on your databases until we get into alternative payment models that do reward you for outcomes that are then linked to data management. The other piece of uh, data management that we, we don't do very well, that I think we, we must do much better, that is the, the flip side of personalized medicine. There's the personalized biology, but there's also the personalized individualized preferences and values of every patient. Those are not um, incorporated into our flow of care in a way that enables them to uh, impact the uh, actual care that patients receive in a reliable manner. It's just not, you know, you don't have uh, in the electronic health record a good structured mechanism for shared decision making which is most of medicine when it's not an emergency. Decisions really should be shared between patients and doctors, and I think most doctors actually do agree with that. But the system is set up at every juncture to, fr to frustrate those efforts, everything from the way the AHRs are developed and, uh, and implemented to the way we're paid uh, makes that extraordinarily hard to do. So a lot of work to do to reconfigure the system in coming years to take advantage of all of this. So, Eric, you brought up the word precision, and we know that in January of 2015, President Obama announced the Precision Medicine Initiative, an, uh, essentially an effort to take what we know now, put it together with a whole lot of what we don't know to come up with real effective treatments and cures in cancers, in diabetes, and all manner of other conditions, which are, happen to be the things that are making us sick and killing us in the greatest numbers to this day. You're leading a very important part of that initiative called the All of Us cohort. T tell the audience about what that is and why it is so exciting. Sure. sure. So uh, w this Precision Medicine Initiative, as you mentioned, Susan, has been uh, basically incubating actually long before, as I've learned, uh, the 2015 State of the Union when um, it was Senator Obama in 2007 who introduced the Genomics and Personalized Medicine Act which didn't get too far, but he didn't forget about it. And what this is about, it, it basically culminated to uh, a, a really remarkable uh, initiative of a million Americans. It's actually even oversampling the underrepresented of the million. It's across all ages and all uh, ethnicities and, and uh, all diseases and health. So we're going to start enrolling uh, in January, and each person will be having uh, a, hopefully many of you will volunteer for this. Uh, they'll be, um, each person will have um, a sample for DNA and genomics. Uh, you, you'll have the opportunity Which to is get basically going to be blood or a cheek swab. You'll right, mm -hmm. right. And uh, there also will be um, sensors that not everyone will want to use various sensors, but they'll, you know, they'll be sent uh, to you to have this data. And, the, and it be, besides sensors and the microbiome and all the things that we're talking about here, subsets of that million or sometimes you know a very large proportion will be opt-in to do these studies and this will go on for decades ideally I mean right now it's got a five-year runway but hopefully it will go on 
you know, for decades. And it's, it is quite exciting because not only has there never been a million-person study like this in the world with this modern technology, and its aim, as you mentioned, Susan, is to make medicine much more intelligent than it is today. But um, the other thing is that all the data goes back to each participant. So unlike research in the past where, again, part of that paternalistic thing, people can't handle it, but all the data comes back. And so there's, you know, apps that will, a lot of the people will be, um, of course, entering through uh, mobile devices, and they'll be seeing their data, and they'll be seeing the entire cohort's data, and so they're part of the citizen science that is, is being nurtured. Hence the name All of Us. And that's all how of All us. of Us, uh, exactly. That's, um, that's and, the And just way, to make yeah. this really vivid for people, contrast that with the way a clinical trial is done today in terms of the size, in terms of what's involved in being in the clinical trial. Right. Well, you know, I just was earlier this week meeting with uh, oncologists, and they were talking about how it costs, you know, $100,000 per patient to enroll, and they have to go to all these clinic visits and all this stuff. You can enroll people now through um, smartphones. They can consent through the web. They don't have to come for all these visits. But the, it, we never give data back. You know, I've been uh, doing research for three decades, and I can't remember when we ever gave person's back. In fact, on the cons when we went to the Institutional Review Board, we had to promise we wouldn't give the, the data back. It's incredible. That's how suppressed people have been, uh, and it's not, it's not acceptable. And so the numbers aren't even comparable. A big clinical trial today might be 3,000 patients. Oh, right. The size but is immense, but you know, the other thing is this continual communication with the app and the tools uh, to, to not only get foster engagement, but to make it fun. Uh, to foster competition for people who are interested. And, uh, you know, this, I think, is, is really um, uh, taking advantage of the kind of platforms that we have today, uh, which is really uh, going through research, m medical research is going through a big-time transformation, making it much more uh, efficient and inexpensive. And just to sort of paint a picture of what, what, what the holy grail might be coming out of this, let's take cancers, for example. What, and, and this, we should say this has a relationship with another initiative, the Cancer Moonshot. Uh, what, uh, what might we see coming out of this 10 years from now in cancer and cardiac disease? Every, have you? Pretty much every disease you can think of is going to be uh, unrecognizable how we approach it. So for cancer today, you know, you have, you have to have a biopsy of the tissue, and that is invasive, and it's, uh, um, it has complications. It's very expensive. Um, the slides, uh, there's lots of argument among pathologists what it really says. Oftentimes, there's not even enough cancer in the slides to be able to say anything. All right, so now we have liquid biopsy, which is a blood sample that you can track serially in a person, and that has tumor DNA in the plasma. And you can manage the entire process through that, sequence the whole exome portion of the genome, coding regions. So what you're looking at is, uh, in fact, being able to diagnose cancer. There's going to be uh, programs, including ours, the, the All of Us, where a tube of blood is looked at for diagnosing healthy people. Because many of us who are healthy, predisposed to cancer, could have tumor DNA in our plasma. And we've already seen over 100 pregnant women who are having their samples for their uh, fetal uh, testing, and they turn out that they had cancer unsuspectedly. So this is a, a big change. We know cancer, of course, is a genomic disease, and we're, we're seeing new ways to diagnose it that really challenge. And by the way, we, uh, we were talking before we get started, um, the pathologists 
and the radiologists, by the way, who you know, read all the slides and the scans for people with cancer, we've already seen by very well-done studies that that information is interpreted better by machines than the, by the doctors, more accurately. So talk about not only different means of, of making the diagnosis, but also the way the machines are coming into play and challenging pathologists and radiologists as to what are they going to do when they grow up. Which takes us back really to the discussion about the entire economy of medicine, economy of healthcare. Mark, we're not only going to have all kinds of new information, new ideas about how to intervene, how to prevent disease, how to treat disease. We're going to need very different people. Uh, and some people who are doing it now are going to be pushed aside. How do you, how do you see this going forward? Yeah, these kinds of technologies are definitely a threat uh, to, you know, in their existing state, to certain uh, medical specialties like radiology and, you know, cardiology to some extent, where the information is already highly digitized and can be read by a machine with high accuracy. Uh, there's probably more of that to come, uh, and you know, you might expect that then who's going to be threatened by all this? It's going to be the healthcare professionals, the physicians, and, and others, mainly the physicians probably in, at this stage. Um, one interesting thing about uh, the physicians is if you, if you hear, uh, if you listen to organizations like the American Academy of, uh, or Amer American Association of Medical Colleges, the AAMC, which accredits medical schools, um, they've been projecting a shortage of physicians for a long time and a rather dire shortage. Whether those projections are correct is, is not totally clear, but one thing we know for sure is that the number of doctors relative to patients is going to decline in this country over the next 10 years. Why is that the case? We went through a massive um, expansion of medical schools just after Medicare as part of the Medicare legislation that was, that was in there. So we saw a lot of medical schools open up in the late 60s and the 70s, and though no medical schools opened up in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, at least for allopathic medical schools that produce MDs. And now we have some new ones coming back, but this is essentially like watching a meal move through a snake. Um, <laughs> we are going to see these doctors <laughs> retire. And the population, meanwhile, has just been going up, 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 up. So the ratio of doctors to population is going down. Um, so this problem may, in a sense, solve itself to the extent that we're going to make some kinds of doctors either change how they um, deliver care or some of them may be out of the kinds of jobs they've been doing to date. One of the technologies that we haven't talked about yet is cognitive computing. And so IBM has Watson, and we know several years ago Watson beat the uh, leading contestant in Jeopardy. Now Watson is being brought into oncology, and for example, in a recent test down at UNC, uh, the oncologists were as good as Watson 99% of the time, but 1% of the time Watson beat the oncologists, and it's because Watson reads the literature, of, of which there are 100,000 <laughs> cancer-related articles a year, and Watson was able to point out some things that the oncologist didn't know about how to treat a patient. That's today, and a lot of people say cognitive computing is today the, where, the place where the Internet was in the 1990s. So thinking about the future where you might, if you're sitting in podunk, you might rather have Watson helping to diagnose your cancer than the local oncologist. Uh, what is that going to do in terms of creating this new yeah. economy of healthcare? You've got to test the Watson. This is the thing. Make, make sure it's actually accurate. <laughs> you know, we, it's easy to get faked out. I think that a lot of us have been sort of um, interested and, and a little bit um, chastened by the story of Theranos, for example. Um, so these things do need Theranos to really be tested. Theranos being the company that, that said it had a whole new way to yeah, do blood tests. It didn't turn out to necessarily be very accurate yeah. at all. Well, but I, many of you probably saw the 60-minute segment I think you're referring to 
at University of North Carolina cancer with Watson and how uh, it had 30% of the diagnoses, this was compared to the oncologist, were upgraded change because of the Watson mm -hmm. input. Um, so the, 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 the main thing here is this artificial intelligence, deep learning, is not just a Watson story. There's a, now over 100 startups with a lot more agility that are coming into medicine. And then the other big thing notable here is that um, we're seeing for the first time all of the tech titans come into medicine. Uh, is IBM's betting their entire company on this, but we also have uh, Apple, um, Google, uh, Microsoft, uh, Qualcomm, Intel, um, 3M. It's all these companies now are making this the most important part of their future. So that actually bodes well because what do we have in medicine today? If you go in a hospital in a regular room, the alarm goes off of the IV continuously. That shows how pathetic technology is in, in healthcare. But now you have the real technology folks that are coming in who actually can make a difference, not just in the hospital, but across the board. So I think it's good to not only welcome them because they never did it before, they, they really were afraid of the FDA and this was unfamiliar territory, but they see it now as the uh, most important uncharted frontier and also the fact that they can make uh, an enormous difference. So we do want to open it up to questions and comments from all of you. So we've got one right here. Let's wait and uh, do you, get right in the front. Okay. The one thing that worries me is bad data. Because of some people have problems remembering, some people don't know that it's important what they're telling the doctor because they don't realize it. And this is somebody who's just had one of those situations where I told the doctor, hey, in the past I've had pneumonia twice, etc." And they don't, they didn't see it in their files because it happened before you were their patient. Mm -hmm. And there's many people whose minds are not exactly straight. <laughs> you don't say. <laughs> and they don't remember what they told or should have told their doctors. And that's the thing that scares me because I know how much I no longer remember. Maybe I'm 81 years old. How much have I forgotten that I was supposed to tell the doctor from four doctors back, or they went and took the doctor out because he happened to be old. So how does this brave new world of collecting data and processing data that you both are describing, how does that address that question? Well, I think it's great the point you raised. First of all, it's important to acknowledge what we have today, which is over 20 million serious medical errors in this country a year, and many of these are life-threatening. Uh, the fourth leading cause of death, medical errors and med medication errors. This is really serious. This is the problem we have today, and you're acknowledging that, I think. But one of the things that really gets my goat is the electronic health records, because everybody thinks it's some kind of magical thing, and you know, over $30 billion were expended as part of the Affordable Care Act for electronic uh, records. Actually precedes the Affordable Care Act, because right. oh, it right. was the high-tech law, high it was a stimulus law. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. that's right. But what you're getting at is um, anyone's electronic health record is only one little part of their story. You go to lots of different doctors and health systems over the course of your life, and that's not reflected in your health record. <laughs> right. I believe every human being has the right to own their health record. 
okay? And that record, uh, by the way, instead of having the hacks that we have today, over 100 million people had their medical records hacked, Americans, in the last year, if you own the record, that decentralizes it. And it's your, it's your right, it's your property, it's your body. You paid for this data. And that would show up the two episodes of the pneumonia or other things that happened earlier in your life that would guide a doctor when you share that data. But you, you are the final common pathway of your data. And that isn't the way we think today. And it's another part of this medical paternalism that doc doctors and hospitals, unless you're in the state of New Hampshire, own your data. And New Hampshire, they don't even know that their citizens of residents, know, they don't even know they own their data. So we have to fix this problem. It's a serious um, misappropriation of your information. We have a question here. Meg, would you stand up, please? Hi, thanks. You actually um, started alluding to what I wanted to ask about, which is this data is traveling through apps. Um, it's vulnerable. How, how do you approach making sure that this massive amount of information is safe? Because it's so very personal. And you might want to address uh, specifically how in the All of Us initiative the yeah. data is going to be made secure. Yeah. Well, in all of us, there is, in fact, the, int the reason why we're not enrolling right now is because so much is being put into security uh, that this is going to go beyond. And that you never, as, as you well know, can never guarantee this, but the precautions that are taken here are, are uh, uh, there's never been anything like this. Um, and so it'll be, a, by the way, that came up last session uh, when Malcolm was asking about um, the breaches of security. There are, the Amazon cloud has never been hacked. There are many government databases that have never been hacked. So th there are ways to do this if you do it well. Uh, but the best, number one thing, if you talk to cybersecurity gurus, is to not have data uh, put into mass places. Whenever you have large targets uh, like the Anthem and these other, UCLA, the entire health system was hacked. Uh, w when you have that happen, that's, that's the wrong way. You, if your data are decentralized, that helps protect it. But one thing to point out today, everybody has your health data. We're talking about data brokers. We're talking about cyber thieves. and, and we're, talking, uh, we're talking about pharmacy benefit managers. They all, apps, Fitbit, they all have your data. That's not the way it should work. You should say, oh, if, you, if they want to get your data, they should be asking, you should be granting permission. It's your data, but that is not the way it works. We have to grant people ownership so that we can start to get to privacy and security. Mark. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just add, add to what Eric said. Um, this is a real concern. As we make data systems better for the delivery of patient care and you know, easier to understand, um, it does raise the risk, of course, if there's a successful hack, that someone can actually do something meaningful with that hack. Uh, right now, you know, if, you, if you hack someone's epic chart, good luck reading it. Um, <laughs> you're going to get a bunch of disconnected data and no narrative and you know, not have any prayer, really, of, of doing anything with that data. But that's the same problem that your doctors also have. So as we solve one problem, uh, we do sort of grease the pathway a little bit for the um, nefarious uses of the data so that the security does raise an importance. We have a question over here. I, I would like to not scare anybody, I, but I have a pre-existing condition. I'm getting old. It's the alternative, as they say. Right. None, of my, uh, none of my doctors, and I, golly, how many do I go to, Ann? Uh, too many. Uh, I always uh, get, uh, first thing I say is, do you belong to the AMA? No, no, I quit, no, I quit. What are you going to do 
if you had a chance to advise the new administration about how to get my primary care physician to participate and buy in to whatever it is they may be working on. You mean in terms of in the, the, the replacement provision of the Affordable fix, Care Act? To fix the Affordable Care Act. Mark? So we, we've studied this at length, actually. Um, that The key thing for getting physician buy-in and for determining whether a physician uh, is um, happy or sad in her, in her practice is convincing them that they are delivering high-quality care. So if, if the doctors believe they're delivering high-quality care, they're pretty happy overall. If they believe that they are not delivering optimal quality care for whatever reason, whether it's the technology not facilitating care, whether it's the payment model preventing them from spending enough time with their patients, um, those are the predictors of burnout. And uh, so that, that's the key thing here is uh, whatever change you make to the healthcare system, run it by the front line, make sure they can see a way that this is producing higher quality care, and you're going to get buy-in from the physicians, I believe. But doesn't it also go back to a phenomenon you were describing, Eric, which is things are changing, right? That paternalistic model is changing. Uh, the exalted sort of white coat, godlike <laughs> experience that many of us associate with, uh, with medicine 10 or 15 years ago. For doctors, it's different. They don't have godlike status quite anymore. Uh, this has also got to be part of the equation, isn't it, why, why doctors are so resistant, not just to the Affordable Care Act, but to a lot of change. I, I think one of our biggest problems today, uh, Mark touched on it, is physician burnout. And uh, the number of physicians that are uh, prematurely giving up their practice, the number of suicides uh, that is greater than one or two medical school classes per year now, there's never been the depression among physicians like there is today. And uh, some of this is they don't even connect with patients because they have, have to type on a keyboard for billing purposes largely. Uh, and so the patients are frustrated, the doctors are frustrated. They have so many things that they don't get to even, they, seven minutes is the average visit. Seven minutes in this country, 12 minutes for a new patient. So they, you know, doctors went into this profession because they really do care about people and they can't even provide the care that they want to. They can't even look people in the eye anymore because of the things that have been imposed. I look at it as, as, as an exciting time to hopefully turn this around. And I may be overly optimistic here, uh, but we don't need to have uh, this, um, this, this state. Technology, if doctors were willing to accept it, that for example, they don't have to use keyboards ever, ever again, that this can be natural language processing of the, of the whole encounter. Um, but moreover, that technology is shifted to the patient. The patient is much more responsible for their care. That decompresses their load, and so they can spend more time with patients. So I, I think the hope is that we will get to a better state. But right now, um, this is um, it's very scary how bad the sentiment is, the morale. In, in the physician workforce. Mark? Yeah, I'll, just, I'll differ with Eric on, on one point here, which is I think doctors are actually early adopters and um, in, in general actually very welcoming of new technologies. Um, I, don't, I don't think that's necessarily like a, a baked-in response not to want new things. It's just that it has to be something good. There has to but, be a but, demonstrated link to better patient care. And the resistance comes when there's uh, some new uh, box to check or, or some new um, uh, you know, regulatory requirement that just seems to have very little to do with patient care or, or you know, even worse, 
may harm patient care. That's where you, you do see a lot of um, resistance. The sense of, that it's busy work or somebody yeah, watching over like your that. shoulder constantly. Well, you know, yes, physicians are uh, technology adopters with various devices, but when you ask them will they support prescribing apps to their patients, most of them don't want to do that, okay? And not only that, but 70% of doctors today won't share their electronic medical office notes with the patient because they feel the patients they, can't they handle the truth. They won't even give you their email. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they're, they're physician, they, they do adopt technology, you're absolutely right, but not to, to uh, transfer control more to patients. There's been this unwillingness because of this uh, longstanding uh, relationship and dominance, you know, of the, I, I think we have to see that it, among young physicians, just getting in medical school and training, you see much more of this, they, they, they know where this is headed. But among the, uh, by the way, more than half physicians in the United States are over the age of 55. They don't see this largely. We have a question over here. Please stand up. My name is Brandon Barney, and my question is, and this is related to the price of any good, and you mentioned it earlier, that if doctor and medical services are more expensive because there aren't enough doctors, why isn't the emphasis on the public policy side to increase the number of medical schools and dramatically increase the number of doctors? Well, so <laughs> please I'll, I'll go ahead. Right. Say a little about that. Uh, the, the question sort of presumes that there's a free market for healthcare services, that, and that unfortunately isn't really the case um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, doctor prices are largely determined through an administrative pricing system run by CMS, Medicare. And all the private insurers base their prices they pay to doctors off of that, with some wiggle room for local market power. But it, it isn't fundamentally a pricing system that's driven by free market forces for physician labor. So whether or not the supply of uh, physicians has anything to do with the prices is pretty unclear. Well, and, and just more broadly, I mean, do we, let's be blunt about this, do we really need more doctors or do we need no. No. more health care provided by the right level of individual, which, which might be a nurse practitioner, it might be an RN, it might be a community health worker, etc. And a machine. And a machine, yep. right. So. All, all these shortage estimates that I quoted earlier from the AAMC presume the current model of care is going to be per perpetuated forever and that it's optimal and any deviation from it is bad. Which is which basically physician-centric. They're looking at physician-to-population ratios. Um, but this ignores all kinds of things, like uh, we just trained a ton of nurse practitioners and physician assistants. We had a massive expansion in those kinds of um, allied health professionals who are going to come in and hopefully offload a lot of work from physicians as, as that um, giant cohort of physicians starts to retire. And we probably could bring along a lot of people and provide meaningful work, meaningful jobs for people in the healthcare sector at much lower levels than physicians, right? Oh, and no question. I mean, if you, if you look at the healthcare labor force today, it's going to soon overtake retail as the number one labor force. If you, every city in, this, in the country now, health uh, commerce, um, healthcare commerce is the number one uh, form of commerce. That can't go on, especially when you have ways to uh, unload this to make it much more efficient and, and use the technology that isn't being used today because there's so much resistance. All right, I, think I have a question over here. More questions? Yeah. Good morning. On May 27th of this year, the National Institutes of Health issued the results of a three-year, $25 million study which has conclusively demonstrated a causal relationship between cellular telephone microwave signal and the formation of glioma, uh, which, as you know, leads to glioblastoma. 
Um, it seems to me that this is an underlying issue set that has not been addressed very seriously, and I seek your comment with regard to it. Eric, do you want to take that? Yeah, no, I think this has been a very controversial area, which is the risk of brain cancer from uh, cell phones. And there does appear, you know, there's mixed data. That's one uh, report, many others, that there may be indeed a small risk. Uh, I believe personally that there is a risk, but it's um, in people who are predisposed to cancer and particularly brain cancer. And so someday we'll be able to sort this thing out by connecting the genomics with, but no work has been done in that regard. So that those people who are at risk of uh, gliomas, glioblastoma, would be forewarned that they need to really be careful about uh, the use of cell phones because of this risk. So I, I think there's something there, but th many argue that the signal is, is still ambiguous and it hasn't really had any impact because there's just as many studies that refute it. But my personal belief is there may be something going on. And so what would be the theory of the case, that you have a, a genetic predisposition that the environment, that the, the signals in effect basically create a difference in gene expression? What's the, what's, what would be the idea behind how that would work? Yeah, no, yeah. it's just like anything about with radiation that you would, some people, uh, for example, if you send people up to International Space Station, astronauts, some will be do, do, do great, and some will get cancer. And it's not because of how long they were up there necessarily. It's because of their biologic predisposition. We know almost all the predisposition um, genes, the oncogenes and tumor suppressor genes, but just like with the DNA drug interactions, we don't do anything about it. You can have through uh, consumer genomic testing, uh, likes of color genomics and Veritas genetics, you can get um, tw 30 predisposition predisposition cancer genes tested today. Uh, so, you know, it's a couple hundred dollars. Uh, it's actually pretty affordable now that we've overruled the, the myriad dominance of this field with the Supreme Court decision. So you'll see over time, more and more people will know at a young age, are they predisposed to cancer? And if so, what types of cancer? And then they could do, like if it's melanoma and the sun, if it's radiation and this. So you'll, you'll start to see a pattern of how people will change their lives for prevention, true prevention, not the kind of stuff we have today. We have a question over here, sir. Could you stand up, please? Uh, I appreciate the, the comments that have been made about the workforce and, and, and so forth. My question is, as we look at the baby boomer generation, which will be approaching Medicare eligibility in the, well, it's already starting, but, but the, the median baby boomer will be hitting that age around 2022. And then maybe 10, 15 years after that, we are going to see a precipitous decline in the number of, of elderly as, as we age through that process. This is likely to also then create just the opposite problem where we have a glut of healthcare providers. I also appreciate the, the comments about the physician age, the median physician age being at about 55. The median age for RNs in this country has been going up by one year a year every year. It's now at age 60. My wife, who is an RN, has, has colleagues of hers who are simply not coming to work the next day because they died. Not because they retired. That would be an impediment. That, that we have to <laughs> So as, as we, yeah, it, it does reflect the workforce. It gets in the way. But the question is, you know, how do we get through, whether it's through recruiting, et cetera, through this bolus of, of 
of years where we're going to have a, a very large number of Medicare-eligible individuals who are going to require a great deal of care because we know that that happens, followed by a time when, obviously, then what do we do with that workforce so after the baby boomers you Watson, know, go robots, the the what's the answer? Right. Well, just to acknowledge that, in fact, there was a really nice article about the nursing uh, shortage the retirement and, and other reasons for their losing them in the labor force and the demand, but in the Wall Street Journal this week, uh, front page article. But the interesting thing about this is that that's nursing burnout too, just like physician burnout, because this system is really hard to deal with, um, and that's why we do need new models. And like one of the, a lot of nurses are employed in hospitals. In hospitals today, you have, not only can't you not sleep in the hospital, everyone will acknowledge that, okay, but you have a one in four chance of being harmed. And that hasn't been changed by any quality improvement program throughout the country. One in four chance of being harmed. Fulfilling George Orwell's, uh, the, the hospital's the antechamber to the tomb, you know, many, many decades later, right? And, and then you have this, that it costs $4,600. That's the price to be in the hospital for one night, average. In the, in the United States. Now, if you're a nurse and you're working in these conditions and you're seeing patients harmed left and right, that doesn't feel good. But, but beyond that, we could do all the hospital rooms could be replaced by remote monitoring in the comfort of one's own bedroom. We could do that today. We could do that today. Well, <laughs> and, and neurosurgeons say 90% of neurosurgery could be done on an outpatient basis. So it, that shift work, to outpatients world, was, what was kind of the precursor. Everything was inpatient and outpatient. Now we're going to home. To You'll home. see that happening. And that, I think, will be not only if you look at the line items for cost of health care, hospitals right up there. Uh, if we can gut the hospital room, not necessarily the intensive care unit or the operating rooms, but the hospital room, there's just no reason to have people in a hospital where they can be harmed and where the costs are so ridiculous. This, this workforce, just a general point uh, on the workforce stuff, it's, it's, it's very hard to make predictions too far into the future. And it's a real challenge because the training pipeline for nurses and doctors is so long, uh, especially when you, technology is proceeding at a quick pace. Um, one nice buffer just to remember that we always have is that shortages and surpluses are always local phenomena. And we can reallocate workforce within the United States quite a bit. Um, and this actually goes back to something I said earlier about the lack of a free market for physician labor. Normally, a free market handles this already when, when wages are flexible and determined by a free market. You know, if there's a shortage, you're going to have a higher wage to move there. But when there's an administered pricing system that's relatively um, national and without any uh, variation, you lose that essential um, part of a nice buffering mechanism. So there's, an, um, there's actually a huge policy op uh, opportunity here for Medicare and other uh, types of actors to come in and start to um, do some intelligent engineering of the distribution of the healthcare workforce. Not to mention take advantage of telemedicine and mm -hmm. other things that Medicare has actually been slow to embrace. Mm -hmm. I think we have time for one, one more last question. question. Yep. Uh, yes, it's Rob Ehler. And this isn't an academic, but getting to your point on who owns the records, I've been following a personal practice for years. When you, This doesn't cover hospitals, but outpatient stuff. A doctor has to get tests, so he sends you to a lab, or you go to an MRI or CAT scan. You, I get a copy on a disc every time I go to one of these uh, third parties, and they give their summary to the doctor, and quite often the doctor just reads the summary, doesn't. But I have a, my own personal library just by this effort, 
you got to pay $4 or something for an extra disc to take home, and they will do it. You can even go back to that, uh, that lab or MRI place a year later and get it. Right. Because it's, so if, with a little bit of effort, you can build your own library to protect yourself against this. Who owns the uh, And, the and we're on the verge of having apps so you can have your EHR on your smartphone. Right. You're very, you're very wise to take that initiative, but I can assure you you're in a very small minority who do that. Uh, but one thing, what just so you get the picture here, 10% of medical scans in this country, 10%, which is billions of dollars that we're talking about, are, are redone because the doctor can't get to the scan that you had or it doesn't feel that its quality is adequate, it wants to do it over again. 10%, that's a lot of, that's billions of dollars of unnecessary scans because people, largely because people don't have their data to give to the doctor. So just to close, uh, Tony Blinken uh, quoted uh, President Obama as saying, uh, for all of the problems that we have uh, in the world, if you were about to be born and you were behind that veil of ignorance, you know, where am I going to end up in life? Am I going to be a rich family, poor family? Am I going to be in North America? Am I going to be in Africa? You would want to be born today because of the progress we've made around the world as a society. Let me turn that question to health care. If you had to be sick, <laughs> would you rather be sick today, despite all of the issues we have, whether it's Obamacare, whether it's these, these uh, safety issues that you've mentioned, Eric, would you rather, are, are we better off today than at any time in the past in terms of health care, broadly speaking? Um, unfortunately, not. I, my my response would be, Scotty, beam me out about ten years at least. No, no, but well, <laughs> but, uh, but not the past. Right? Yeah, I, I mean, I think I think you know we have the we can see the opportunities. They're exciting. They're limitless. They require radical shifts in our thinking and acceptance and, and you know and taking on these challenges. I do think it's 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 really quite remarkable. But a lot, almost all of it, has not taken hold yet. So that's what's of course. Um, so just everybody wait to be sick 10 more years. <laughs> we'll get it all fixed. Yeah. Mark, yeah. last uh, word to you. Uh, it depends on what you have and who's paying. <laughs> what you have what? what? What you have and who's paying. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> spoken, like a, spoken <laughs> like a guy with an economics background. So join me in thanking the two of them for a great discussion. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, Visit us online at www.rand.org events.